Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to be here one final time this morning. We're going to pick up in verse 32, read one verse there, and then we're going to be in Revelation chapter 19, reading verses 6 through 10. Hear God's word. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32 says this, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In Revelation chapter 19, so Paul there in Ephesians 5 is talking about marriage. He says that marriage refers to Christ and the church. Marriage is the metaphor. And here's where marriage ends. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to them, to me, these are the true words of God. And then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said, you must not do that. I'm supposed to worship an angel. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. This ends the reading of God's holy and errant and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade. May the word of our God. May it stand forever. Well, I, um, I didn't want to end the series talking about divorce. Um, that's um, an ominous way to end a sermon series on marriage. And so I want to end this series with a uh, happily ever ending sort of uh, ending that you as good Americans raised by Disney are used to. And as we have said over and over again, uh, what we are talking about in this series, as much as we are talking about the specifics and the vision for your marriage here on earth, that any earthly marriage, that what it is, ultimately what God has purposed it for is to be a metaphor of a greater, more real, and more perfect and lasting marriage. That is the marriage between Christ and his church. And this morning we are ending our series by looking once more at the real marriage. And not so much looking at the metaphor. We've spent a good amount of time between the class we have at 9 o'clock and then some parts of the series looking at the metaphor, that is your earthly marriage and the nuts and bolts of that. But this morning I want to look once again specifically at the heavenly marriage and then maybe just make from there just a few comments here and there about your earthly marriage. And this is important for us to understand about our relationship with God. That of all the metaphors that God gives us, king to subject, parent to child, the one that he most wants us to grab hold of is this relationship, that his relationship to us is like a marriage. And what we see in Revelation 19 today is the final story, final scene of our marriage story. It is the consummation of that marriage at the end of all things, that we as God's church are moving towards this great wedding day that Revelation 19 is talking about. Now, Revelation, whenever one reads uh, from Revelation, it is quite um, easy to get confused because Revelation is a profoundly confusing book, and I don't claim to understand it. But something we can understand about the book of Revelation and something that helps us see why it can be so confusing 
to understand Revelation is to think of Revelation as a, an electrical or cable junction box. You got a picture? Perhaps yours looks, you've seen one that looks like this. This is what the book of Revelation looks like in which you have to try to know, you look at it and you go, how am I supposed to make heads or tails out of all of these metaphors? And what the electrical junction box is, it's all the electrical aspects of the church, of the house or the building and all the cables and it comes to this hub place. And when you look at it, if you don't know what you're looking at, if you don't know how electrical wiring is supposed to be, then this looks absolutely confusing to me. This looks like a mess that is utterly bewildering. And that's how Revelation often comes across to us. That what you have in Revelation is all of these narrative threads that have run through the Bibles, through the Bible, the metaphors, the pictures, the stories that are there in the Bible, and it is coming to the junction box that is Revelation. And it all collides in this place such that we look at Revelation and we go, that is confusing. I can't make heads or tails out of that. But what John is doing, if we were to look at just individual passages like we do in Revelation chapter 19 and just say, look, there's one thread here. Let's just pull on this one narrative thread. And what is the story that it tells? We're not going to try to understand the whole of Revelation, just this one thread. And in Revelation 19, we find the terminus of the story of God's marriage to his church. We are living in a marriage story. And so in pulling on that one thread... It is coming to this end, this junction box of Revelation, just saying, all right, let's just look at this one wire, and let's pull it out. What is that story? And in pulling on the thread of our marriage story, I want you to see three aspects of the story. We're going to look at our past, we're going to look at our present, and we're going to look at the future. Our past. What is the past of our marriage story to Christ as his church? You ever heard someone say about this, about another person? about their relationship with them, yeah, we have some history together. And the church has history in its relationship with Jesus. It means that that relationship is loaded. There's a lot there. It means stuff has happened in that relationship that affects the present and affects our view of the future. Or in the words of the old Facebook uh, relational status, we look at our relationship with Jesus and our past and we go, it's complicated. It's complicated. Our marital relationship with God has a history. Even before we get married, our dating relationships in this earth have a context, don't they? There's history there, right? Some of you in this room have relational history. You and your spouse had a history together. And for some of you, it's a very, very long history. Kyle McKenzie Spade, they've not been married for that long, maybe what, six years I don't even know if Kyle and Mackenzie are here this morning. They've been married for maybe six years. They're a young couple. You know when Kyle and Mackenzie started dating? They started dating in middle school. They have a long history. Last year, we had um, a, a couple in our church, uh, Nelson and Marianne Chance, got married in their 70s. But their relationship didn't begin there. They only got married in their 70s, but they have been friends since high school. That is some serious history. Well, we got some serious history in our relationship with God. And this is going to be a quick review of the whole Bible. And some of it's going to sound like a review of where, even where we've been so far in this series, but let's walk through it again. What's the history in our marital relationship with God? First, God says that he is betrothed to us. 
God describes his relationship to his people in the Old, Old Testament as betrothal. Now, that word is not a word that's necessarily familiar for us. It'd be somewhat like our engagement. But the Jewish wedding process began with this betrothal. And while it's somewhat like our engagement, it's actually more legally binding. In the old, ancient Near East, if you were betrothed, if a man betrothed himself to a woman and a woman to a man, they were essentially considered to be married. If they, in order to actually break off their marriage plans, they would have to go through the legal process of an, a divorce. Everything was there in that marriage except for the consummated nation of the relationship. And so how does God feel about us? God says that my relationship with, to you is like you are my betrothed spouse that I have set my eyes on you and I have come and I have said I want to be married to you and I want to live with you for all of eternity. Some examples of this in both the Old and the New Testament. Hosea chapter 2 verse 19, God comes and says to Israel, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. And Paul picks up on that same image in the New Testament as well. For 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, it says this. He says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So that's part one of our history. We are betrothed to God. Part two, though, it goes very downhill very quickly. That we have been an unfaithful bride. But as we looked at a number of weeks ago, we were unfaithful to our groom, weren't we? That we cheated on him. The Bible, particularly in the minor and major prophets, the latter part of the Old Testament, refers to the people of Israel and God's people in their sins, in their idolatry, in their worship of other gods. He uses the language of marriage and adultery, saying that you have cheated on me. You have prostituted yourself. And so that we are a betrothed bride who has put on a wedding dress, but that wedding dress is solely by our sin and adultery. That's a bad story. That's some complicated history. And so what we see in the third part of our history in our relationship to Christ as his people and as his bride is that our faithful groom in the face of our adultery, in the face of our sin, has come and has ransomed us back to all of our adulterers who we have sold ourselves to sex slavery into and he has come and ransomed us. This is the story of Jesus. That he is, the groom has come and he entered this world and he said, I will do all that is necessary to buy you back and to make you mine. You know, one of the places in which we see Jesus actually ruminating on this is at an actual earthly wedding, at his first miracle. In John chapter 2, it's called the wedding at Cana, and Jesus is there with his mother and his disciples, and he's at, apparently at a friend's wedding, and suddenly at some point during the wedding feast, his mother comes rushing up to him, and she says to Jesus, they've run out of wine, do something. Now, to have run out of wine in an ancient Near Eastern wedding would have been brought profound shame on the family. And it would have brought the wedding feast, which was supposed to last for a week and sometimes longer, to a screeching halt. All the joy would have been left the wedding feast because what else? What was no longer there? The wine was gone. In the words of Jack Sparrow, Why must the rum always be gone? In the words of Mary at the wedding, why must the wine be gone? And so she comes to Jesus and says, do something. And Jesus responds in a bizarre way. 
He looks at his own mother and he says, woman, it is not yet my time. What a profoundly bizarre way to speak to his mother. Now, in the book of John, we understand this phrase only by understanding that an ever gone do something, and he responds by going, it's not my time to die. This is still rather bizarre. Well, how do we make sense of this? Well, here's how biblical scholars understand it. It's a little bit speculative, but it's the best answer that they can come up with, that Jesus is asked to restore the joy of the wedding. And as he's sitting there thinking about what it's going to about restoring the joy at this earthly wedding, that he is thinking about what it's going to take to have to, to restore joy at his own wedding one day. That he's sitting there thinking about not that wine on that day, but he's thinking about the cost of the cross in order to bring joy at his future wedding day that we just read about in Revelation 19. He's thinking about the cross of his, that he's going to have to pour out his blood. And that in order for us to enter into heaven and to be welcomed to the wedding feast of the Lamb where we will drink the joy of heaven as his bride for all of eternity, that in order for us to drink the wine of his blessing and joy, that at the cross of Jesus Christ, he is going to have to drink the cup of God's wrath. And so, Jesus sits at a wedding and he thinks about his own death and what it's going to cost in order to ransom his bride back to him so that when he comes again, he does not come as his bride's vengeful executioner, but he comes as his bride's lover. This is the history. Now, that is a loaded history. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus, we can look forward to Revelation 19 because of this history that we have just gone through. This is our complicated history, our relational past, but it's an amazing past because it highlights not our beauty and glory, but the glory and beauty and the faithfulness of our groom. Now, where does that leave us today? Where does that leave us now? We are betrothed to God. Jesus has brought us back into this new covenant, and we are awaiting the day when he's going to return, and this marriage joy will be fully consummated, but we're not there yet. We've sung about that in multiple places this morning. There's an already, uh, like a day in which he will make all things new, but as we sang in our second song this morning, we aren't there yet. So what are we doing in the present? So we looked at the past, now we look at the present. Well, what would ancient Near Eastern brides and grooms do during their betrothal as they waited for their wedding day? They prepared. They did what we do. They got wet. They did various things to prepare themselves for the wedding, the wedding feast, and that wedding day. I remember um, seeing a particular uh, friend of mine in college, uh, this was senior year in college, and he was. I see him in the gym lifting weights and getting on the treadmill. And this was not a friend who was, he was a rather chill dude when it came to these kind of things. He was not somebody who I'd ever seen in the gym. And a- after seeing him there fairly consistently over a course of a couple weeks, I went up to him and I was like, dude, did you make a New Year's resolution? And he said, no, I just got, I just got engaged and so I'm on the LGN plan. And I said, the LGN? What is the LGN? Is that like the new keto diet? And he was like, no, the LGN. It's the look good naked plan. (laughs) What was he doing? He was preparing for his wedding day. I wanted to tell him it's too late for you, big fella, but no. No, when you get betrothed, you have a season of preparation, both the groom and the bride. What's our groom doing to prepare? 
Andy talked about this a couple weeks ago when we went to the table. And he brought this to bear. That after the betrothal, the groom would go back to his father's house. And he would go and he would build a new annex, a new aspect of the compound, the family compound, new room or a new building in order to have a place for his bride to live with him in the future. And Jesus says the same thing to his disciples. He says, when I leave, I go to prepare a place for you. That's what Jesus is doing. That's what's going on in the present. So that one day, the new heavens and the new earth, that it will come down the house that he has prepared for us in all of its glory and beauty, where as we sang, where there is no more tears and there is no more loss and there is no pain, where it is a glorious and beautiful place where he will bring us into. Well, what are the, what's the bride supposed to be doing to prepare? That's us. Well, the bride has to prepare herself as well, and it says this. It says this in Revelation chapter 19, verse 7 and 8. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And what is that fine linen? The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. As the betrothed ones, you prepare to be married by doing what? How do you make yourself beautiful? Church, is we adorn our lives with righteousness with the righteous deeds of the saints. That this is what we're supposed to be doing in our life here. That as we look to that wedding day, that we are to be about, do, about God's business in this world, to love righteousness and justice and mercy, to do kindness, to love, to grow in the fruits of the Spirit. Now you look at that and maybe as somebody who has been in this church and you understand the gospel, you'd go, I thought the gospel was that Jesus closed us with his righteousness but now I see that our beauty and linen in this, in this metaphor is that it's our righteous deeds. Well, the Bible says that each one of us is created in Christ Jesus. He has made us righteous in his sight. But he also says that in making us righteous and calling us to himself, he also says this in Ephesians chapter 1, that he has prepared beforehand, in Ephesians chapter 2, righteous deeds for us to do. That God has prepared work for us to do in this world. And we actually see the same idea also brought out in one of Jesus' more famous parables. It's called the parable of the feast. And it's a reference to Matthew 22 in which Jesus comes and says in this teaching, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gives a great wedding feast for his son. And so he sends his servants out to go out to the highways and the byways to bring the impoverished and the sinners and to bring them into his feast. And then they come into the feast, they are all offered wedding garments. That they take off their robes of poverty and sin and they put on a gleaming new white robe. And yet, what do we see? That this, actually, this parable is a parable of warning. Because what we see there in the account of the parable, that the father comes across a man who's at the feast who is not wearing the wedding garments. And he says, What's the deal? How did this guy get in here? And the man refuses to put on the wedding garments. And so the father actually kicks him out of the wedding feast. You see, here's what this means. That yes, Jesus clothes us with righteousness. But Matthew 22 means that you actually have to change. That you actually have to change the clothes. You have to put on something new. 
People are showing up. It would be right if you don't, if you ever see any real change, the question is, do you understand the righteousness that he offers to you that you must adorn your life with? The gospel says change, grow up, be adorned in the beauty of the first fruits of the spirit, not to be loved. He's already placed his love and affection on you, but because you already are loved. And no one, he says, can encounter the magnitude of this love that God gives us and not be changed by it. So if you've not been changed, if you're not daily putting on the righteousness of Jesus and living in light of that, it might be evidence that you have never actually encountered the true love of God. Even if Revelation 19 is providing us a warning here, that we are, don't get it all wrong. The invitation, the gift, the love is bestowed on us as a gift from God. But we must take on the gift. We must wear it and we must walk in it. Now briefly, here's an application for your marriage. God has placed a marriage into your life. How do, what do we see? What's its purpose? What's its goal we want to see it do? It says that the husband washes his wife, or Christ washes the church with the word so that he might present her beautiful. Marriage is one of God's most sanctifying places that we can be. In other words, what is the one of the ways in which God is adorning you and preparing you and making you lovely for that future day is he's putting you in a marriage where we rub on each other, where we have to wash each other clean, where sanctifying work must happen, where he is adorning us, where our marriage is God's means of bringing us into a relationship of suffering, because that's what marriage is often, Bring us into a, a relationship of suffering by which he sanctifies us and changes us and adorns us and informs in us an eternal weight of glory. Is that what your marriage is for? Or is it simply for your happiness? Church, this brings up this question for us. As his bride, are we about adorning our profession of faith with righteous deeds? Are we about, about doing all that is necessary to buy the jewels, to buy the beauty, to buy the adornments and the fine linen in order to put on this righteous, these righteous deeds. Do we put these things on? Don't, you know, one of the things that you don't understand if you have a, a daughter and, and, and you have a daughter who's getting married and then when it marriage to that process, you can put your foot down about some of the costs. Maybe the cost of the food or the cost of the flowers, but what can you not put your foot down on? The dress. Don't mess with the dress. You will spare no expense for the dress. Pay any price. Well, brothers and sisters, are we willing to pay the price to adorn our lives with the beauty, the beauty of righteousness? And what might make us want to adorn our lives that way? What would make us want to prepare ourselves in that way, to adorn ourselves with the fruit of the Spirit? What makes the bride joyous and delighted to adorn herself with righteous deeds for her groom? Why? Why does she do that? Because she got the invite. Verse 9 says this, and the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited into the feast. You have been chosen. You have been chosen. Blessed are those who get the invite. Blessed are those who get the ask. Some of you remember and sometimes in your life when you got the ask. When you were a sophomore in high school and the junior asked you to the prom. 
you got the ask. When you went out for the team and you've tried out and there were 25 people trying to get 12 spots and your name was on the list, you got the ask. Max Lucado talks about, he's a preacher in Texas who's written many uh, Christian books. You may have heard of him before, but he talks about a college girl that he remembers uh, from his college days that she was in this Christian ministry where she was she lived often kind of like a recluse. She was, often, she was very shy. She was unsure of herself. She didn't stand out in any way. She didn't wear makeup or try to dress up much. But he said there was a startling change one year when all that changed. That her, she began to do her hair differently. And she wore makeup more often. And her demeanor changed. And her confidence changed. And her whole personality seemed to just kind of blossom and flourish. And so what happened? What happened? She got the ask. But some young man had put his affection upon her and said, I want to be with you forever. And it changed her perspective on life. And so it is. Why is it that we would want to adorn our life with the beauty of righteousness, of kindness and goodness? Because we got the ask. We got the invite. He has said, I see you, and I know you, and I want to spend my life with you. Prepare for the day. So we do. We prepare for the day in which he will come back, and he'll bring us into his house, into his wedding feast forever. Do you see John's response about how floored he is about the fact he is still amazed that God has given him the invite? That he has invited him into this relationship. How, what is John's response? John's response is he's so floored in verse 10 by the fact that the angel says, you've been invited to the wedding feast, that he actually is tempted to bow down and begin worshiping the messenger. And the angel said, don't worship the messenger, worship the one who has asked you. He was floored by it. And so let me ask you this. Are you still floored by the fact that you've been invited You've been invited as his betrothed one into a relationship with him. When you have been invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb, have you, have, are you still amazed by that? Does this still lead to worship? Or, or has this truth become a platitude? You know what a platitude is? A platitude is a truth that we say. It has not lost its truthfulness. But it has been stripped of its emotional weight in our lives. That it's a true thing that we say but it's been stripped of its significance and weight inside of us. It holds no weight for us anymore. And so let me ask you this, have you lost your first love? That's one of the reasons why Revelation is being written. John comes to the church in Revelation or in Ephesus and says, you have lost your first love. And so Church of Jesus Christ, are we no longer about adorning our lives with the beauty of righteousness and goodness and kindness and love? Have we grown weary in doing good? It could be because we have forgotten the beauty of being invited. That it doesn't hold weight for us anymore. And what we need to do is we need to long to be restored to amazement that there would be amazing put back into grace. That he has invited us to into this relationship with him. And that, that is the motivation that we then have to say, I will adorn my life with righteousness and goodness and peace and patience. Revelation 19 
It connects us to our past as we pull on that narrative thread. It reveals the work for our present, that we are to be preparing ourselves for that future day. And of course, of course, it also tells us of our future. The last thing we're going to look at. What awaits us? Revelation 19, verse 9, and the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. What awaits us as his bride is a feast. The groom would get his bride in the ancient Near Eastern uh, way they did marriages and prepared for it. He would come and he would prepare his house and then after having prepared his house, he would come and, with his entourage and they would come to the, the bride's house and they would get her and he would take her to his house and the whole city would come and they would throw an enormous party. And those parties would last at least a week. At least a week. And therefore, you know what we are as Christians? We are the people who feast. Christians are a people who feast because one day that is our future occupation. Your future occupation is to be to feast. C.S. Lewis said it this way, that joy is the serious business of heaven. To drink deeply of the blessings of that cup at the table of the lamb. To be gathered with one another and to speak about what he has done. And this is, this is, this is the life that we have ahead of us that he is welcoming and inviting us into. It's an eternal party, an eternal wedding feast. But it's not just a feast. There's also something else that goes on at the marriage supper that is, that is actually the true joy. It's not the bread and the wine and the grapes. It's not the turkey. It's not the stuffing that's on the table. There's something else that's the pure joy at the table. Let's see if you can see it from this Publix commercial. there's going to be good food. There's going to be blessings to drink of. But what's so great about the marriage feast is that it's the marriage feast of the the lamb. And when we come to that table, who will we sit with? Our groom. That it's the context is this joy and this blessings that he gives, but the greatest blessing is what? Him. Him. This is where your life is going is in this direction, it's towards this wedding day, where we will, not, we will no longer see in a mirror dimly, but we will see him face to face. And not just that, we will see, Lord willing, the very people that we're married to now. Remember we said this a couple weeks ago, that we will get to that day 
And we will see our spouses in all of their glory and we'll say, I always knew you could be like this. And we'll see them as God has always designed them to be. And so what's that mean for marriage today? As a final word, that we can take joy, take joy in our future. And therefore, we can endure the suffering now. And that is the suffering of our marriages sometimes. You see, sanctification is really hard. And the church endures much as God purifies us, as he prunes us of our selfishness and our worldliness, as he disciplines us and cleanses us. It is a painful work. And God allows his bride to endure suffering, and we are waiting for that day. And there is suffering in the waiting. We are longing, yet we don't fully experience what we desire is to see his face. And our marriages are part of that, aren't they? Our marriages as being a means of God's sanctifying work in us can be a place of pain and difficulty. And we believe, often, we believe this, that we, the way to get rid of that pain and that difficulty is just to find the perfect spouse. Some of you think that you could just be happy if you could just get married. And some of you think you could be happy if you could just fix your marriage. Or some of you think you could be happy if you could just get rid of your marriage. Some of you think you're really wrestling because of your marriage ended, whether it be through death or divorce, and your beloved spouse is gone, and your heart aches, your heart aches, and you don't know if your heart will ever find joy again, but he, he is the satisfaction, even in the face of such suffering. He is the joy that you need. You may have lost your spouse, you may have lost the dreams of what you thought your marriage could look like, but you will never ever lose him. And how is that true? We go back to John chapter 2. Edmund Clowney, who I took, a, I took a preaching class from in seminary, when he preached on John chapter 2, he said this, he pointed this out, that Jesus Christ is sitting in the midst of the joy of this wedding, that he has provided the best wine, this wedding reverently and abundant wine that's just overflowing. And all that Jesus is doing in the midst of all this joy around him is he's thinking about his future suffering at the cross. So everybody is happy, but Jesus is sad. And then Clowney makes this point. Jesus sits in the midst of all that joy, sipping the coming sorrow of the cross, so that you and I can sit in the midst of all of life's sorrow and sip the joy that's coming in heaven. How do you endure this earthly marriage, this mere shadow, as you look to the one who's coming? You look to the perfect marriage that's ahead. Jesus sat there in the midst of all that joy and was sad because of the future, but you can sit in the midst of the joys and the sufferings and the difficult things God asks you to do in the midst of your marriage now, and you can experience joy because of the future that is ahead. Whether you have a good marriage, a bad marriage, only the memory of a marriage now, or no marriage at all, there is a day when you will have the perfect marriage. Praise be to the Lord. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we have, um, we have sang of the story. We have seen evidences of the story this morning, of the, of the bride doing good work. And we've looked forward now to the completion of the story in Revelation 19, when you will bring us home. So Lord, I pray that we would be a people who feast even now, 
I think this week, I pray that, Lord, that yes, Thanksgiving will probably be dysfunctional. And yes, our kids will complain about the food. And yes, sometimes we'll be annoyed by the company we keep. But Lord, I pray that even as we sit this week at a table that is a feast, that we would look our, raise our eyes up and we would remember there is a better feast coming. That these things that we experience this week is merely a shadow. A shadow of the coming rejoicing and feasting that we get to do. And the Lord, that would give us and empower us the ability to stay engaged, to love those around us, to adorn our life by loving our children and our spouses and our extended family and our friends. Would you make us beautiful, Lord? Might you do that? Would you empower us and give us perseverance as we look forward to that great day when you will make us perfectly new? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.